Welcome to the Toka Backstage Podcast. Join Toka's Executive Director, Chris Wolf, in conversations with the artists and people behind the scenes of the Torrance Cultural Arts Foundation's performances and events. Hello, and welcome back to another edition of Toka Backstage. It is my honor to have uh, John Tesh with us today. John will be performing his acoustic Christmas show coming up in December 6, 2019 at 8 p.m. It's a Friday night at the Armstrong Theater. We hope you all will join us. John, thank you so much for taking the time. I certainly do appreciate it. Ah, my pleasure. Just looking over your Wikipedia page, I don't know how you make time for, for even two seconds of talking. Well, you know what's funny about the Wikipedia page is that I looks like I have really bad ADD. It's sort of like, what? Why didn't this guy just sort of settle on something? But it's, uh, I have some great people who work with me. That's, that's really, really what it is. But I also, I, you know, I'm, it's a much longer story, but, uh, you know, four years ago in May, I was given uh, 18 months to live. So, and I came on the, out on the other side of it and ended up being healed from a, a terminal cancer diagnosis. So I don't mind being busy. <laughs> it means wow, not. I did not, that, that is definitely not on your Wikipedia page. It's not, I should probably put it on there. But and, and one of the reasons we kept it sort of quiet was that, you know, we got 300 radio stations and it was like, you know, I don't, it's, I, I love these guys, they're great, but, but I wouldn't want them to say, well, you know, he's not going to be around for too much longer. Let's, uh, let's put in Flippy Danny and the Weasel to replace <laughs> his, uh, his radio show. Congratulations. Yeah, I right? yeah sure. That's awesome. That works. So I have to say, I mean, six Emmys, two Grammys, and again, forgive me if I miss anything, but this is on your Wikipedia page. Eight million records sold. You've hosted Entertainment Tonight. You've actually been a sports caster for the Olympics, Tour de France. It's like Ryan Seacrest has nothing on you. <laughs> what, a, what a varied and amazing background you have. It's been a fun life. It's really odd, too, because... I spent a good bit of my of my youth uh, with bad, really bad stage fright, and the, the reason a lot of these stories are 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 forward in my hippocampus is that I'm just about finished with a memoir that Harper Collins wanted me to write, and I think the reason they wanted me to write it was because of the way I got healed from cancer. But it's it's a memoir of uh you know really from when I was about six years old. First of all, I was horribly unpopular. I was. I, you know, the person you're seeing now is I'm six foot six and I weigh 221 pounds and sort of my fighting weight. But when I was in junior high school, I was this height, six, six, and I weighed 155. And I had braces and I smelled of clear silk because I had acne. So really the only thing for me to do was to play piano and study trumpet and, and be in the orchestras and be a band geek, which wasn't all that popular back in the day. And that ended up being just a big blessing for me. And I learned what focus, deep work, practice was, and it's and it's. Uh, I mean, it's been some bumps along the way, but it, it's it has uh, it stayed with me. Obviously, from what you said, you were shy, and and so you focused on music. But how did you take the next step? How did you get over that stage fright to actually like be in front of millions of people? I tried to muscle my way through it, and it really it didn't work. And what happened was, and I'm, you know, I have three grandkids now that are not as uh, loud as your leaf blower, but. Uh, <laughs> And again, I apologize. No, no, it's all good. <laughs> Mine's coming soon. But I, I tell, you know, I tell their parents, my son, you know, and, and his wife, I say, listen, don't do the, the recital thing. It's really six, seven years old. I had Mrs. Andriani was, you know, and the teachers, God bless them, you know, they want to show off with all the work that they've done. And so, sure. but when you get up there, if you have any fear at all, once you miss a note, you know, it, it's, 
it's so bad. And so it was hard for me. And it followed me all the way through doing book reports and any of that stuff. It was just, and it followed me all the way through college. And even though I was playing in garage bands, I played organ in dance bands in, in junior high and high school. It was always like, it was always like this, you know, I didn't look up, you know, it just like, I, I, just, I just stayed with the keyboard. And so that'll also make you really popular. But when I got out of college and really, I guess must've been like 27, 28 years old, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to tour or do anything if, or even be in a recording studio, basically, if I didn't get rid of it. And so I, I hired, I found a, uh, which I highly recommend. I found a, a guy who specializes in stage fright and worked with, with solo violinists and, and opera singers and pianists. And, and he uh, worked with me for two years and there was, there were some basic techniques. I'm actually writing about this in the book, you know, things like, practicing failing, making mistakes, and then how are you going to get out of it? Is it going to be a facial expression? You can't start over, which is what you do usually when you're a kid. That's why those recitals are so long. It's like, back, it starts at the beginning. And then there's the other thing, and I still use this technique to this day where you know we have concerts coming up, and obviously, and and I will have, so when you come to the, you know, come to the Christmas show and you're sitting in one of those seats, I will have sat in that seat. I sit in pretty much all the seats at about noon, and I, I meet everybody in the concert hall, you know, all of the stage hands, every, the people the people who sell the tickets, you know, all of it and the coffee shop around the corner and everything. So that's my living room. You're coming into my house, right? And so when I walk out on stage, I'm totally comfortable. And it, I don't really have to do it anymore because, I, because it's now, it's now a, a muscle for me. But as a ritual, you can ask, um, ask my guys, you know, Scotty Myers, our, our tour manager, you know, he'll tell you, I still, I still do that. And it, so it's, there is life on the other side of stage fright. And by the way, Stage fright, right, manifests itself not only on stage, but asking uh, a woman out, doing a book report, being in, the, in a conference room and, and speaking up. You can use those techniques for any of that. I know when I was in high school, I was a performing magician and, and uh, I invited somebody up and did an arm chopping routine and the thing got stuck. So they had to walk off with my arm guillotine. And I think that sort of shut me down from performing ever again. It was like really embarrassing. But so I, I right, need to right, find right. those people. Right. And, and it's like you have to do the Navy SEAL thing, right? So it, well, Navy SEALs won't, they won't go into a, uh, you're helping me write this chapter. This is good. Navy SEALs won't go into a, you know, an assault into a building without, I think it's like four or five different exits. So had you had, had you said, well, this is one of the things that can possibly happen. And had you had an exit, you could have gone with them off stage. I don't know. You would have, you would have, you would have, come, you would have come out with something in there and it, it wouldn't still be haunting you to this day. <laughs> Music is one part of your life, but also there's the newscaster, the, uh, the sportscaster and, and the entertainment personality. How did you find your way into Entertainment Tonight and Olympic sportscasting? Yeah, a lot of it is just sort of saying yes and just going. When I was 20 years old, I wanted to be a musician. I wanted to be a performer my, my whole life, even though I wasn't comfortable doing it. It was just something that was in me. So I was always making little films. I made a film you know, where I suspended my cat with a, with a coat hanger on a, on a clothesline and and flew her through the air with some fishing line. It was Tippy goes to Mars, you know. You know, I was always doing little things for the, you know, for the kids in the basement of Halloween. And I always wanted to do that. But my dad was convinced, World War II veteran, was convinced that I'd starve to death if I went to music school. So he enrolled me in textile chemistry at North Carolina State because he was vice president of the underwear division of Haynes. And so he wanted me to carry on the underwear mantle in the, in the family. And that lasted until I was about a junior in at NC State. And then I took a radio television course and it lit me up 
And so I said, I got to change my major. And I went around to all of my professors and you know, sort of pleaded my case. I was after the drop ad time. We can see that, you know, this is something you really want to do. And so they signed the thing, but my statistics professor wouldn't sign it saying that, you know, it's university rules, whatever. So I had a, a, a dorm mate who said, ah, there's 120 kids in the class. Just do what I do. You know, I drop classes all the time. And I said, well, what's that? He goes, you just sign the professor's name. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, and when I tell this story on stage, you can hear a, you know, from the audience because they're thinking I would never do that. I did. And uh, things were fine for, you know, a couple of weeks until my report card came. A report card didn't come. It was a letter from the university saying that I had broken the honor code from the chancellor. I'd broken the honor code and I'd been given an F for the course and they were suspending me indefinitely from the university. And that wasn't even the worst part of it. My dad decided that I had shamed him. I had shamed my mom's bridge club. I had shamed the Haynes underwear division. And so he kicked me out of the house. So at 19 and a half, 20 years old, I was in my Volkswagen with a pup tent on the top, drove from Winston-Salem where my parents were living to, uh, to Raleigh. And I lived in a park for six months under an overpass. I was a homeless person digging ditches for... C.C. Mangum Construction Company, and, and I was pumping gas for college ESSO. It was ESSO back then. I realized that the only way to get out of that was to make a fake demo tape. And since I was already a radio demo tape, I was already a, a, a criminal. I broke into the campus radio station and I did the, uh, you know, I was like, hey, this is John Tesh. Here's a helicopter traffic report, you know, and, uh, and I did like, you know, uh, this, is Chorus, this is correspondent Boris Skindy in Cairo. Henry Kissinger had this to say about the possibility of peace in the Middle East. I think there's a possibility of peace in the Middle East, you know, and, and like a little piano, you know, it's John Tesh, WKIX 2020 News. And I turned the reel to reel tape into this guy who I still keep in touch with, Scott White. This is 1973, who was the news director at WKIX, the Rick D station. And he said, did you make all these noises and all this stuff on here? And I said, yeah. He goes, listen, if you want a job that bad, I'll give you a job. <laughs> so I, I had the job of, of playing the religious tapes on uh, Sundays at 4 o'clock in the morning. And since I was already a criminal, I would take a razor blade after about two hours of this madness. And, and I would make a little notch in the tape. And uh, then the tape would break and I'd go, oh, we seem to have a technical problem. Uh, let's play some music. So I would do a show. <laughs> and after a while, the general manager said, uh, I know what you're doing. And if you want a job that badly, you can do the news on the weekends. And so the reason I told you this long story is that like Cortez, when you've burned your ships and you only have one choice, that's, you, have to, you have to go. You know? And so that sort of spirit of risk is what caused me to say yes to, when I was working at CBS News, uh, yes to going to sports. I knew nothing about sports. Yes to going to entertainment tonight. They only gave me a 13-week contract. So what the heck? And then yes to starting the radio show. Because yeah, what's the worst that could happen? I could be in the tent under an overpass. <laughs> you know, that's it. Sorry for the long story. No, no, that was great. Because, I mean, it, it kind of gives a sense to your, you know, sort of all-in mentality. But also the fact that, You've sort of survived the tent under the overpass, and so it's like, like you said, what's the worst that can happen? You've already been there. Yeah, and uh, listen, stuff has happened to me, and you know, and again, it's a longer story, and I tell it on on stage. But I got healed supernaturally. You know, I had faith for the doctors to heal me from cancer, and they did a great job and all that. But the cancer kept coming back. Finally, my wife and I sort of like. We were in a radiation oncology uh, place underground at Cedar Sinai, and we were being lectured by the guy. He wanted to fire, fire bomb. He wanted to carpet bomb my pelvis, and yeah, 
I would lose this function, that function. And when he got to, you're going to lose sexual function. We said, okay, we're done. <laughs> and I don't know if you've ever seen the, the 300, but when King Leonidas turns to his uh, queen, when the Persian messengers come in and they want, pretty much wants to enslave them and, and he's trying to make the decision as to what to do, he looks back at his bride and his bride sort of gives the, the eyebrow flash and he knows that he knows that he knows that he's not going to do that. And he takes his foot and he kicks the, the messenger down, down the well, which of course starts this huge war. That's the look that my wife and I had at the moment. The doctor w was saying, this is your, this is the only thing that's going to kill your cancer. And at that moment, based on a scripture that I have tattooed on my arm here, Mark eleven twenty three, I knew that I knew that I knew that I was healed. And I, at that moment, believing that, that God had provided healing for me, I was not only healed from cancer, I was healed from arthritis and everything else, back pain, everything else. And so uh, that knowledge, right, I believe is the, you know, is the same thing that was deep within me when amazing things were happening to me. And all I had to do was just sort of say, okay, I'm going to take a chance and God, you'll be with me. I wasn't thinking about it then, but, but looking back on it, it's like, wow. I mean, I was in a tent homeless pumping gas. And three years later, I'm anchoring the news at WCBS TV in New York City, right next to Walter Cronkite's uh, you know, studio. So you tell me what happened. It wasn't, I'm an average guy. It wasn't talent. <laughs> it wasn't. Well, and that actually brings up a, a point. Part of what the foundation, the, the TOCA does is we try to encourage and sort of mentor young up and coming talent. We have a Inner talent competition and then we take those kids who win and we put them in sort of mentor them with other professional touring artists what and every all the artists that I talked to on this podcast I asked them what advice would you give to a young person who is sort of looks up to you and says wow he if he did it I can do it what advice do would you give to or do you give to young people yeah it's so different now right uh, because and, and and good and bad the good part is that like Let's use Justin Bieber, for example, who became a YouTube sensation and that ended up launching his career is that you actually have a way for people to, to find you. So you don't really, it's like what Macklemore said, you know, no, no, I don't need a record company. Record companies are not completely necessary. I mean, I, I got turned down by every record company and PBS said, Hey, we'll take a chance on you, John. But. So there are many more opportunities. The problem is that there's so much music out there now because it's so much easier to express yourself, whether you've got GarageBand or Logic Pro or, you know, or, or Pro Tools or any of that stuff. And you can learn how to play an instrument, you know, over the weekend on YouTube, which is incredible, you know, so yeah. it's, it's, it's amazing what's going on. The problem is when you're like, okay, I'm going to make an album and then everybody's going to buy it, right? And it's going to be in the stores or it's going to be on Amazon. Back in the day, it was at the stores. And that's the way I felt. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm realizing, no, wait, I don't have nobody. I'm the guy who reads the celebrity birthdays on Entertainment Tonight. How are they going to all of a sudden think that I'm, I'm a musician? So you have to find a creative way. And a great book, by the way, is Jack Trout's Differentiate or Die. And it's like, how am I going to find a creative way for people to find me? And I would say, the number one thing to do is whether you're going to do, and you can do it on, on Facebook or YouTube now is playing live because the two parts. One is playing live because if you can show people that you're a real musician with passion and they catch that passion, they're going to follow you, you know, anywhere. So don't start it with, okay, I'm, I need an Instagram following. I need a YouTube following. I need a Facebook following. But the other part of this, which I think is really huge is, is a message. I know one of the most popular songs I ever wrote 
with James Ingram and Carter Cathcart was a song called Give Me Forever I Do. And the reason that song did so well and ended up as a number one song on AC Radio was because it was a wedding song. And so it, it, it had purpose. So if you're writing songs that are, 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 you know, with the intention of it being hooky, that's one thing. But it is a lot of garbage out there. But if you're writing a song, that's why, you know, a lot of these gospel uh, artists do so well, because obviously there's purpose in, in that music. So if you think, what's the purpose of this song? Does it have a message? And am I being useful? Because if you can help somebody, they'll follow you forever. Yeah. And, you know, it can be a love song. It can be, it can, it can be anything. Here's a hooky synth line. I mean, there's a hooky synth line in Sweet Dreams are, are made of this. But they're also the lyrics are cool. That's what I would say. And the other thing is, I always say to, I mean, even younger people that you're talking about, but I always have moms and dads asking me after concerts, when should I get my kid into learning an instrument? And what I always say is piano, voice, guitar, ukulele, whatever it is, it's all great, but they really need to sit in a band in an organ. They really need to play a trumpet or a flute or something. Sit in an orchestra or a band, marching band, and collaborate because that there's a chapter called Dr. Wagner in, in my book, and it's all about how everything I learned about focused, intensive practice and, and setting goals, I learned in the band. Because when you have, there's competition in there, there's blending in, there's math going on, it's all there. And sadly, a lot of the elementary and uh, junior high and high schools, they don't have music anymore. Well, and, and it's sort of a point, a conversation I've had before with other artists is in back in the day, there was the record store or magic store or whatever kind of whatever you wanted to get into there was a place to go to meet other people to have to brainstorm to sort of form a bond with other performers now a lot of the kids sit in front of their their laptops and their computers and they miss that camaraderie and that that uh, brainstorming and just having learning those lessons like you talk about so joining a band you know even if you have one at school or whatever, I think it's brilliant because it, it does sort of bring people together and gives you those life lessons, not only for performing, but in general. I agree. Austin Kleon wrote a book called uh, Steal Like an Artist. And you're like, oh gosh, what do I really want to steal what other people are doing? And it's a brilliant book because and it's, and it's sort of, it talks about, it was like a, it was like a, a, a magic marker underneath everything that I've done by accident. And that is, I've always pointed at people and tried to reach where, where they are, whether it was Walter Cronkite or Chuck Scarborough, who anchored the news in, in New York, or a guy named Doug Limerick, who was on the, on the radio, or it was, uh, gosh, everybody from Rachmaninoff to, to David Foster, the great piano player and producer. And you, and you look at them and you focus on them and you try to emulate, you can do this on YouTube now, right? right. And you, try, you try to emulate everything that they're doing and you meditate on what they're doing. And you'll never really, unless you're going to, unless you're going to plagiarize what somebody is writing, which I don't recommend because I was already a criminal, it is uh, you become who you are, but look at trying to strive for what they've accomplished. And so you move your mentors around, right? And everything that, that you do, and it's a great book. It's all about that. And you, and it, it just, because it keeps moving the, the bar up. And what, if you really want to look at, at old school, vintage, analog way for success you look at the beatles because everybody looks at the beatles and they're like oh yeah they were just like this they were these pop superstars yeah but nobody really talks about anymore all of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of 
bars they played just in and around Liverpool before they even got to their first single, before they got signed for anything. They were ready. They were found ready. So that's another one of the tips I always like to see is, is say is you got to be, you know, if, if you're pointed towards success and, and somebody and you have goals and somebody says, wait, I like this kid, I'm going to put them on stage or whatever, you better have practiced your instrument or your speech or whatever. You got to be found ready when that opportunity comes. Excellent point. I don't want to miss talking about the Acoustic Christmas. You have so many albums, you've done so much great work. What inspired you to take on Christmas? Christmas drives me crazy because in order to record a Christmas album, you have to do it in June and July. And it's really hot when you're doing that. Also, when you're on stage, if you mess up a word, and it's one of the reasons why people like Sting and Elton John and even Frank Sinatra had a teleprompter because everybody knew their song so well. You know what I mean? So it's like, oh, the weather outside is frightful and the fire is so uh, nice. You know, oh, oh, everybody knows that you just messed that up. I had a great life growing up with music and Christmas. And so... There are so many that my biggest problem is there's so many Christmas songs to choose from. It's like, okay, am I going to do uh, Let It Snow or Bring a Torch, Jeanette, Isabella? You know, does anybody know what that is? <laughs> you know? So it's also what you're going to see on stage is pretty much what you'll see if you were to come here at Thanksgiving or Christmas to my house where I'm sitting now is that my son, Gib, who'll be with us on, on, this, on this concert run, he plays ukulele and he's also a comedian. Prima, our, my daughter, who's 25, she is a ballet and modern dancer. She'll be dancing with us. And then we're not bringing the grandkids, but that's what it is. is that there, there's a, in this house, there's a piano about every 60 feet or some sort of instrument. And so you really, you're going to see sort of Christmas in my living room I, uh, on stage. And we can go, we do some spoken word stuff. We do a thing called Old School Christmas. I want an old school Christmas. I want to go back in, t in time when, when uh, the TV stopped at midnight and Coke was a dime. You know, it's, it's like, so it's really a baby boomer Christmas, if you know what I mean. That sounds amazing. And from an artist standpoint, you're up on stage, you're pouring your heart out. What do you want the audience to walk away with after they've seen this show? It's a good question. Uh, and, and it's, you know, Nietzsche said years, <laughs> centuries ago, that as long as you have a why, you can endure any how, right? And so that's what I'm always thinking. I'm saying, why should people come to this show? And I've really stopped doing what I did when I first got my first PBS special out there, which was, you know, play 15 songs and move on, you know, and, and say, hey, you know, this is, I wrote this song when I was in, and I really have a conversation with the audience. It's much different. I'm always thinking, what do I want people to come away with, like you asked? And I'm not Elton John. I'm not Billy Joel. I'm not David Foster. I play at my, at my level, but I also have some life experiences that you can learn from, and, and, and including stuff where it's like, I would never do that, so I think my life is going to be, a, you know, be a whole lot better. And so when people are looking at me at 67 years old on stage, and my audience is women 45 plus who have dragged their husbands to a John Tesh concert, is they're looking at me and they're going, you know, with a little practice, I could do this. And that's really the message that I like to, I like to send is it's true. In fact, at 45, 50, 60 is the perfect time, for example, to learn how to play piano because you actually care about it and you don't have the minute mind or egg timer on your piano like, like I did when I was six years old and it's, it's ticking away and now you can't watch 60 minutes anymore because the ticking drives you crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I cannot thank you enough for your time today. It's been a pleasure and I'm really looking forward to actually meeting you in person when you come out in, in December. And I know that uh, we have VIP tickets as well where people can actually see your sound check and, and actually get to 
uh, meet and greet you, which would be, I would recommend highly. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And, and it's, uh, you know, hey, it's been great therapy for me. <laughs> I feel much better now. <laughs> I don't have stage fright anymore. Oh, good. Uh, and again, it's uh, Friday, December 6th uh, this year uh, at 8 p.m. at the Armstrong Theater. John Tesh's Acoustic Christmas. John, thank you so much. Thanks, man.